Welcome back or welcome to the Single Track Podcast. On today's show, we have Eric Sensman. Eric is a professional trail runner for Hoka One One, Rabbit, and Goo Energy. Alongside Jim Walmsley, Tim Frericks, Stephen Kirsch, Jared Hazen, and Cody Reed, Eric is also a member of the Coconino Cowboys, the famous training group based in the American endurance sports mecca of Flagstaff, Arizona. Like previous guests of the pod, one of the things I appreciate about Eric is how willing and excited he is to comment on some of the biggest issues, opportunities, and questions around our sport. We dive into some of them in this episode. Let's see, we discuss the factors required to create the Coconino Cowboys, the similarities and differences of their setup to counterparts like Hoka Nazalite in the track and field space, as well as the conditions needed to build similar training groups elsewhere in the US. Eric reflects on his strategy of surrounding himself with better runners to fast track his own ascent in the sport. We talk about the makings of a good trail town and we cover how media coverage is evolving in our sport and what innovation will look like in that space in the near and long terms. Before we get started though, in the spirit of getting to know the guest better, I wanna share this excerpt from I Run Far contributor and Solomon trail runner, Dakota Jones. <laughs> Whether it was said in jest or taken out of context, I don't know. But it is the vibe I got from our conversation, so I'm rolling with it. Quote, to spend time with Eric Sensman is to feel truly and finally understood. He looks at you with concern and interest, clearly indicating that what you're saying is revelatory and wise. He seems surprised, too, but surprised at himself, as if he's inwardly wondering how he ever could have lived his life without you. He flips his wave of thick brown hair back and forth without ever breaking eye contact and his mustache quivers with anticipation for what visionary insight you might reveal next. Eric Sensman validates you, completes you even. He's what all friends aspire to be." End quote. With that, let's get into the fourth episode of the Single Track Podcast. Eric Sensman, welcome to the Single Track Podcast. Yeah, Ben, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Awesome. Well, I really want to dig right in. Um, I've been wanting to have this conversation for quite some time. I see you as somebody with really an awesome uh, perspective on the sport. I think one, you've done a lot of cool things. And I think one of those cool things is uh, helping to create the Coconino Cowboys. And uh, I'd, I'd love it if you could talk about, I guess, the state of the team. So where you're at right now. Um, forecasting what it will look like in the future. And then I'd love to dig into a bigger conversation about whether the model that you've created with the Cowboys can exist in other areas of the country and, you know, will, if it will take off and why it hasn't already. The sport of altering is uh, newer, um, I suppose, than uh, um, maybe the more mainstream um, sides of running, right? Like <clears throat> track and field and the marathon. Um, so there's been a lot of growth recently in the, in the last couple of decades, especially, but, but I think the, the lack of a team environment within ultra running is a direct result of, um, it's newness. Uh, and until you have enough competition, enough people, mm. just enough numbers in general, um, which, which brings with it. Um, competition, uh, I think you, you lack the ability to, uh, you know, put, put a team together in a way that 
you see on on the roads and, and in the track scene today. Uh, to have a team, you need money, <laughs> and um, you know, getting brands to to be on board um, requires them to kind of see uh, the the upshot of it. So yeah, that's all just sort of a long winded uh, sort of broad strokes, I guess, uh, start to to that conversation. Um, but like I said, ultra running is growing, and you are seeing more money in the sport. You're seeing more sponsors. Um, you're seeing more races. You're seeing more competitive races. Uh, you're seeing course records broken all the time. So um, from that standpoint, I think we should expect to see uh, more of that team environment in, in ultra running. So it, in the case of the Coconino Cowboys, it's funny because uh, I, I think um, the, the sort of like it's a team um, sense kind of comes more from the outside than the inside. Um, in, in some ways, it's just a, I suppose, a culture or a kind of a, a way of thinking in a certain sense. And, and, and that's rooted in um, a group of guys that happen to live in the same place uh, and, and happen to run together somewhat frequently and, and really just happen to be friends. Um, so, you know, we don't all have the same sponsors. Uh, you know, we don't like have practice per se. Um, so, so it's, I would call it much more informal still than what you find even here in town, you know, for example, with the uh, Northern Arizona elite, right. um, coached by Ben Rosario uh, and, uh, mostly on, well, on the road and track is where you find those athletes. So, you know, they have practice and they are sponsored by Hoka. Um, and they, uh, you know, they, they, it's, it's a team in, in the proper sense. So, um, I think what we're doing uh, is a little bit more informal, a little bit more almost grassroots, I guess. But um, I think the lasting effect in, in maybe what people see in it is uh, community and um, uh, sort of a, a certain ethos, which is kind of to get the most out of yourself. And, and I think that's why people have maybe been drawn to, um, yeah, the, the, the sort of group and, and really the people, the people in it. And you mentioned Ben Rosario's team, Hoka Nazelite, and I think you've interfaced with them closely in various capacities. Can you talk about some of the similarities as well as the differences between like what you have going with the Cowboys and how they operate as a team? Yeah. I mean, Ben does a, does a great job. He's um, what I love about Ben is, and, and he's a friend of mine. Um, so maybe I'm, I'm biased as well. Uh, I can only speak highly of Ben, but he's uh, he's a good coach, but he's also just a good businessman. Um, frankly, I mean, he, he, he was a businessman prior to his current uh, position as the head coach of NAZ elite. He, he owns some running stores. So he very much understands the importance of uh, not only um, results uh, by his athletes, but, the need for for engagement with um fans of the sport uh in the need to to reach um ever-growing and, and bigger markets because at the again at the end of the day you're working with with sponsors who who want a return on investment so to speak so I, he really understands that side of things and so i think he does a really good job uh you know they've got a podcast which i hosted for a little while yeah. uh, midday treat with nab elite uh, he started putting out videos recently where he talks about, you know, the workout that week that he has the team doing. Um, so in that sense, uh, NAV Elite and what Ben's doing is very different, I think, from the Coconino Cowboys uh, because we spend um, no time on, on the business side. Uh, we, we've not really tried to make it a, an enterprise in which um, 
uh, th that's conducive to to a sponsor coming in uh, or or to, to making money, so to speak. But um, but yeah, in terms of the similarities, I think uh, you get the most out of yourself when you surround yourself with people who are um, like minded in that way, who are also trying to achieve uh, to, to run as fast as they can, quite, quite frankly. Uh, and, that, and that's what you see at NAZ Elite. And, and you, that's also what you see um, with the guys uh, running here in Flagstaff um, in, as the Coconino Cowboys. Um, you know, it's just, a, I think the, the thing that um, brought us all together was just uh, the, the desire to get better. So when, when you go out and run with people who are going to push you, um, you know, on a daily, weekly basis, uh, you know, you, you get better. Um, and so that's definitely a similarity between, uh, between NAZ Elite and, and the Cowboys. For sure. And, and I do, I want to come back to that in a second, but, um, I think one thing that stuck out to me was back in 2018, you know, the Cowboys were able to align around one race, the 2018 Western States 100. And I'm wondering like how, how easy slash difficult is it for a trail running team to align around the same race or at least a very similar type of event where kind of the, the same training is possible in the same way that like with Hoka Elite, they can align around like the Olympic marathon trials or, or at least the same distance. Like, is, is it possible to replicate that year after year, season after season? Like, did you find that was an issue with the Cowboys? Yeah, 2018 was a really cool experience in, in, uh, as you know, um, I think a unique one within certainly the sport of ultra running, um, that you have the, this group that, uh, you know, trains together, called a team, um, that all runs the same race, uh, logistically certainly think it, it is, uh, more of a challenge in ultra running, um, in part because, uh, there are so many different events that require vastly different skill sets, um, so there are so many different things you you could target um, if, for a race. I think with Western States, um, you know, the history there goes back a little further. And uh, Jim first ran that race, uh, Jim Wombley, in 2016, I believe it was. Um, and then uh, when he went back in 2017, um, you know, Cody Reed w was there to help crew him. Tim Frerichs was there. Um, I was there. Jared Hazen was there. So we had kind of already built a, um, built a, a sort of a group. Uh, we, we all sort of had some skin in the game, so to speak. Like we all felt part of that race yeah. um, in 2017. And I think, you know, uh, as competitors and as guys who want to uh, make an impact on the sport, um, Western States is uh, certainly one of the places to do that in the U.S. ultra running scene. So it, it was almost just a natural next step to say, hey, um, you know, Jim's out there towing the line. Why don't we why don't we go out and try to tow the line with him? Uh, and, and fortunately, it, it worked out so that we were all able to do that. And that was really cool. Um, but in terms, you know, things, it, life's not so simple as it was in 2018. Um in a lot of ways, but especially, uh, you know, for Jim, who, who has now won that race three times and is, uh, you know, it, very much at the top of the sport, you know, there's certain things that are um, going to motivate him and uh, take him to different places that uh, not everyone, not, not everyone uh, is going to be taken to. Um, so I think that's a tough thing to, to do. Um, 
and it would be nice uh, to replicate it again. I mean, it, it was a really fun experience, but um, yeah, I think there are some challenges uh, in, with, with ultra running in that way. Well, the last thing I want to touch on on this theme, if, if you had the opportunity to recreate this in a place like Boulder or Portland, Oregon or, or Mill Valley or any of these kind of premier trail towns, what are some of the conditions that would need to be in place similar to what you had in Flagstaff to get something like this off the ground? Like if I'm, you know, a, a runner of your caliber in another city, where do I start? That's a really good question. <clears throat> I think you see uh, this this um, current under the surface. So I think a lot of people's behavior um is sort of trying to answer that question, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, because I, I don't, I don't know um, exactly what the conditions are. There's, there's really cool stuff though everywhere. Like in, in a lot of running towns, you know, in in Mill Valley, you, you mentioned for example, or, or the Bay Area at large, you know, they have this run Saturday morning from San Francisco Running Company, and um, I, I believe it still goes on. And and I've been to it a few times, and there's like. 60 runners there for it um or more and like really good runners like you're getting dropped um and that that you know that's one example of of kind of a a sense of 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 what uh has been built here in flagstaff but i think the the smaller group like um you know you have to have people around you who are at least of similar ability um not the same of course but you have to be able to run together so that's the first barrier um, then you've all got to live in the same place. And a lot of these towns, uh, that are good for running, um, maybe aren't so conducive to having a job, uh, or being able to make a living if you can't do it through running. Um, so it's gotta be a place where people can, can make a li- you know, can exist. Uh, and, um, yeah. So, yeah, I suppose those are just a couple prerequisites, but I think the, the, the further thing is, um, you can't just uh, throw. It, it's worked so well, I think, with the Cowboys because we we all are just friends. Yeah. And and I don't know how to you know replicate that. Like, um, you, you I think we got very lucky to find uh, just to find other people that um, you get along with so well. So, um, yeah, it's a good question, and I, I I think it's something that's desired in in the sport and in the community is to have a group of people you can train with and be close with and, and that sort of thing. Um, and, and I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure what the template looks like exactly. I just know that, um, I suppose we got a little lucky and it worked out for, for us here in Flagstaff. Well, as a fan of the sport, it was captivating to watch and like, you're just left wanting more, like, you know, where else can this sprout up? So, uh, that's, that's where it's coming from when I ask, but you mentioned this earlier in the conversation. I want to come back to it now. Um, you know, in previous podcasts that you've been on and articles you've written, you've, you've promoted this strategy of surrounding yourself with runners who are better than yourself, that just by virtue of being in that environment, you get better as you're, as, you know, at running yourself. So can you talk about what, kind of what it takes psychologically to get yourself into that mindset as a runner, um, what the payoffs are, what the drawbacks are even? Uh, certainly. It- I, I think it's quite common to have the sort of imposter syndrome, right? Um, that you, uh, <laughs> yeah, you, you're, you're, 
you, you just aren't really as good as you, you want to be or as the people around you are. Um, yet you're sort of brought up in the same conversation as, as these, these other runners. Um, I certainly feel that way a lot of times because, uh, because of the people I run with and how good they are. So it is a tough thing to, to get yourself to do, but I suppose the, the short story is what I learned pretty early on, you know, I ran my first ultra in 2011. So that was 10 years ago. And since I started running ultras, I always, always was training with people that were better than me. Yeah. And what I found was because of that, I was able to get to places in training in terms of how I felt and specifically in terms of how bad I felt uh, that I wouldn't be able to get to without trying to sort of reach beyond what I, what I thought I was capable of. And once you do that, um, the racing actually becomes kind of easier like you, you do worse things to yourself in training than you ever experience in a race. And I think I just sort of, I don't know if I could have um, articulated that in the, in those words early on in ultra yeah. running. Yeah. Um, but looking back like that, I think I recognize that. And that's what drew me to uh, runners and, and groups of runners who were better than me because I knew I wanted to be better. And it was clear to me that, um, trying to keep up with people that um on paper were certainly better than me or faster than me was going to be the way to do it and I, I i i still think that's kind of true because i think one thing that's um vastly different from shorter distance events um is that, that you this this feeling you have to experience um during a race to be successful and and that feeling is one of um almost just impotence uh and, and yeah. it's a feeling of uh yeah helplessness and basically what happens is you get to a point in, a, in an ultra distance race um where you cannot comprehend how you can keep running at the effort you're running at um but you you want to your brain is trying to get you to do it because you you want to run as fast as you can you want to win that's often you know why you're signing up for a race maybe not to win but to do as best as you can yeah um the reason people do not succeed uh or do as well um at ultras is maybe they do a shorter distance the reason you can't just take any 208 marathoner and make them a great ultra runner I think is this very thing, this feeling that you experience that you cannot experience in even a marathon, um, that uh, you have to find a way to, I wouldn't say tame or control, but um, you have to find a way to deal with. Uh, and, and once you can do that, um, it's amazing what you can accomplish, but it's really, really important because what happens to most people is they slow down yeah. when this happens, when they get to this point or they eventually give up, but basically they, it breaks them. And, it, and more than anything, it breaks them mentally. Um, and when you can find a way to, to, to work through those calm low points um, without sort of sacrificing your, your, 
pace or your effort and you come out on the other side and you feel as good as you did before and you never thought you'd ever feel anything but awful um, for the rest of the race and maybe for the rest of your life, it, you go to this place that seems uh, impossible to escape. And once you can, once you do that, if you can do that, then you can have success in, in ultra running. Yeah. And I think um, that that's a, a long way, I guess, of answering your question. But but, but it's to say that uh, I, I can't overstate um, the importance of pushing yourself in training. And, and I think the easiest way to do that um, is, is to train with people that are faster than you. Gotcha. Very cool. Very cool. Well, um, yeah, it's it, there's this whole and just to comment on that there's this whole principle i think it's called loss aversion where where people are you know they're they're more scared of losing than they are stoked about winning and so like this this the fact that you're able to do that is impressive so i just thought it was an interesting thing to comment on but okay moving on a little bit here you i i think you know in addition to being a highly competitive and talented runner you bring a lot of other benefits to our sport and uh, I do a lot of homework for this podcast and I read an article where you've talked about being heavily influenced by Peter Singer and his sort of direct right. impact style of living. And you've also talked about just in your career, just being kind of disillusioned by establishments and whether it was in academia, studying philosophy or in business, uh, wanting to kind of change the status quo. So I'm curious, do you see, do you see yourself as having any purpose beyond competition in this sport? Like how are you trying to impact the sport how are you trying to influence it over time beyond just, you know, winning races and stuff like that? Like, what do you want your legacy to be? Uh, I think all training is a good sport um, that can take the play, can sort of be the catalyst or, or itself an outlet for um, those looking to, uh, to find the road less traveled, mm. so to speak. Um, now, you certainly find all types in ultra running, uh, including those that are um, establishment figures, so to speak. Uh, you know, people who work for Microsoft or, sure. um, you know, uh, what's a big bank? Chase. Chase. You bank, know, what, yeah. whatever it might be. But um, I think what I found in part with ultra running, uh, the, the sport at large, is you can, and I say the sport at large because it's not just the running or the racing, um, but you can create a lifestyle for yourself if you're a little bit lucky, but but also if you if you put the time in to be involved in the sport, in which um, you don't have to kind of follow the uh the the sort of template uh the the life template that um i think people are very accustomed to yeah um so i suppose in in some sense uh that's what i i found in ultra running during uh, these years you know my early 20s whatever when i was sort of asking these questions of um what you know what are we doing here why are we doing the things that we do um, including running just, this is like 50 or a hundred miles, you know, why, why do that? But also yeah. things like, um, you know, why get married or why have kids or why, why do anything? Um, why is a good question to ask? I think so. Uh, I suppose if anything, um, 
the, the, what I would want people to, to recognize is um, running is just running. Uh, it's, it's really not um, much more important than that on its own, but it, it can be used as a tool to uh, accomplish things or achieve things or find things in life that are more important, um, that, that do actually matter. Yeah. Um, so those things are, uh, I think, different person by person. But um, yeah, if I had a legacy, it would be uh, hopefully Eric did pretty well in some races, but Eric also recognized that uh, he wasn't defined by his results. And at the end of the day, uh, the results didn't matter. And um, who he was as a person is, is what mattered. So uh, I think that's a good um I think that's a good thing to keep in mind, especially for those in the sport who uh, are, are seeking success and want to be in the limelight and want to be known for, for their accomplishments. Because, you know, 20 years from now, um, it doesn't matter if you won every race you ran or uh, got last in every race you ran. Um, you're going to walk down the street and uh, no one's going to know who you are, are anymore. <laughs> I mean, like, you, you know, you're, you're going to, you're going to, the sport's going to go on and you're not going to be able to do it at the level you do anymore. And um, you're not going to be getting that same attention or the same accolades or the same fulfillment out of the sport anymore. So um, what do you do uh, in light of that? Well, hopefully you you don't put too much stock in, in your running and your accomplishments and um, you try to build a life that uh, will fulfill you and sustain you long, long beyond your, your career. You talked, you mentioned what I thought was interesting. You mentioned there that um, if you're lucky, you can kind of craft this alternative lifestyle that is very different from this kind of cookie cutter existence of like, you know, you go to college, you get a job, hopefully you retire relatively early and then start traveling the world, something like that. What does this potential alternative playbook look like if you are lucky? And and could and could there be more opportunity than just a lucky few? Yeah, yeah, uh, good question. I think um, uh, the, the most obvious answers, and and this is uh, bordering on um, maybe the cookie cutter uh, lifestyle, but I think getting involved. There's a lot of opportunity to get involved with brands, um, not you know as an ambassador right. repping, you know somebody's gear and and whatever but like actually working with the brand like having a a career um and i think there's quite a lot of opportunity for that and i think for a lot of people that's a a much more um it would be a much more satisfying sort of life and job um to be involved because people that run ultras uh, above all else they really just in my experience they just love the sport like they they love to run. They love to talk about running. They love the gear. I mean, people are just really into it and that's great. Um, you know, I think it's a good thing to be, uh, of all the things you could be really into, it's certainly not the worst. Um, so, you know, but, but for a lot of people, that's just kind of this, this small section of their life that they get to do when they're not, you know, working their nine to five or doing whatever else. Um, but, and I'm referring especially here to, uh, I suppose younger people who maybe have an opportunity to to start a career uh, with, within the industry, you know, um, before they have, uh, you know, they go off and, and do the nine to five. But yeah, the short story is I, I think getting involved with brands is a really great way to kind of build 
that lifestyle, build those relationships and um, try to show your, how you can be an asset and, uh, and yeah, try to make some money out of it so that you don't have to sit at a desk. Awesome. Awesome. Well, one switching gears just a little bit. Um, you used running in an interesting way earlier this year, you were running for Flagstaff city council where you're based and you decided to do this every street sort of challenge to, to get to know the district, to get to know your constituents better. Um, we were talking offline about uh, how Flagstaff in a lot of ways is like the perfect trail running town. Um, but looking beyond Flagstaff, uh, if you had the ability to make the most friendly, trail runner friendly city or town in the country, uh, what would be some of the elements that would go into it? Like based on your experience in Flagstaff and what you've seen in your travels across the, the country and the world? Uh, a, a running town or at least a trail running town um, that's worth seeking out in my experience I think first and foremost it can't be that big of a city um, the only exception I've found there is San Francisco but but it's also kind of a stretch to say it's a it's a great trail running town it's a, it's a wonderful city that actually has access to some trails which is nice um, but but in terms of like true, just great running towns, uh, specifically trail running towns, um, they all seem to be smaller, smaller mm. towns. And part of the reason I think that's necessary is um, you need to be able to access dirt like pretty quickly. Like if you have to run four miles on pavement before you get to a trail, well, you know, then you either have to be running really far uh, to really enjoy the trails, or you have to drive to that trailhead, right, et cetera. So, but, but I think um, the, the, the best of trail running towns are ones in which you can run from your door and access wilderness uh, trails, et cetera, in a short period of time. Um, so again, uh, I've never found a place that offers that um, in, the, in the kind of abundance that Flagstaff does. It's truly exceptional. Uh, you know, like I did run every single street in Flagstaff. That was a, a pretty much all pavement. We have like two dirt roads. Yeah. Um, but, but most of it's all paved. And I'm telling you, you could, you know, this is, uh, 300 miles of streets, um, or so. And it, I could be, I, I could, it, anywhere on that route, when I ran every single street, you could drop yeah. me. And within like a half mile, I, I could find dirt. Um, because there's this crazy extensive um, urban trail system through Flagstaff that's all dirt. Um, there's most, the, the whole border around Flagstaff yeah. is national forest, basically. And all of those forests have trails. So anytime you're on the perimeter of the city, you're right near the trails. Um, it, it's, it's really just amazing. Um, I did a 40 mile run last year where I ran from my doorstep and I summited two mountains, including the highest peak in Arizona, and then made it back home. Um, I mean, it, it's just it, it's very, very hard to find. So uh, just circling back, short story, I think easy access to Proximity trails trail, is what, yeah. exactly. I mean, it's just crucial because you just think about it. It's, it's almost like um, to draw an analogy, it's, it's kind of like uh, working from home versus going to the office. Like yeah. um, if you got to commute, to the office like you're losing you're losing like two hours a day or something right 
just in your commute, like to go back and forth. That's a great analogy. Um, I love that. Yeah, yeah. Whereas like, if you can save the two hours and work at home, it's like, wow, this is incredible. And it's just very similar. Like if you have to drive to a trailhead, um, it's just a totally different experience. And uh, being able to just run from your door um, and be in the woods, it's, uh, yeah, I don't think I could ever give it up. <laughs> how, about, how about, so other factors, like how important, how important a role does like your local running store play in setting the tone for the community? Like you mentioned like San Francisco running company, having those group runs, like how important is how, like what kind of role does like a running store play? Are they just a business or can they be more than that? Oh, I think they can definitely be more than that. And I think the good running stores that exist today and will outlast um, a lot of other running stores that probably won't exist years from now is their uh, involvement in, in the community for sure. Um, and maybe it's a, a sort of a chicken or an egg situation. Um, like what came first? Was it the, 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 the good running store in town that puts on, you know, you know, Tuesday track workouts that a hundred people show up to, um, or were all those runners here because this is a great place to, to live and to run. And then, mm. you know, the store came and people, frequented it and made it part of the community i i don't know you know which one comes first but uh certainly again i think any sort of running town um that you could think of or name there, there's a running store that's very much at the center of it um with events and with group runs and with you know all that sort of stuff how about restaurants i know that pizza chialetta has, has become famous in our world like it's it's it's, it's transcended flagstaff <laughs> That's the truth. Uh, well, any, any, anytime you're, you're, you're running the excessive amount of miles, you have to have good food. That's for sure. Um, pizza seems like a real go-to for, I think, runners in general, but definitely ultra runners. Um, but yeah, Caleb Schiff, who started uh, Pizza Clutter, is, uh, does a great job with it. And in similar, really tries to embed um, the business into the community and make it more than just a restaurant. Uh, and I think that's really cool, um, to, to try to, uh, yeah, be, be more than just a restaurant, like sort of like, you know, running is just kind of running. It's not really more important than that, but it can be used to do more important things. Um, I think similarly, like restaurants, just a restaurant, but, uh, a restaurant can be used to, to kind of do, you know, bigger things, uh, and more important things. And, um, community things. So, uh, we, we, we definitely have that too in, in a, in several, um, avenues, uh, here in Flagstaff, be it pizza, pizza clutter, or, uh, beer. Uh, we have a brewery mother road, um, brewing company in town that, uh, that actually supports the, the Cowboys. Um, they let us come in and drink free beer. So, uh, kind of a cool way to, to, to get involved, um, with the community as well from, from a um, business standpoint. When you were running, when you, and one last thing on this topic, when you were running for city council, were there any ways that you looked into like local government taking a bigger role in like trail upkeep and just again, building out this type of community? Yes. Yes, very much so. And that was part of, uh, part of my platform, which um, got me, uh, last exactly last place in um, in the in the actual in the actual uh, voting. I actually did okay, but I was but I wasn't last. Um, got more votes than I would have thought. Uh, but yeah, part of it was you know the issue is always money. Um, that's really what it comes down to, um, and it's not necessarily collecting more money. Um, 
several people I talked to would disagree with that and say that I was, you know, the government's always about raising taxes, but that's not true. Uh, certainly not in Flagstaff. Um, it's just about getting like a piece of that pie that can make a difference in in trails and trail. You know, our trailheads are way undeveloped here. Yeah. Uh, underdeveloped um you know there's not really facilities there's not like a kiosk with a map at, at a lot of them yep. typically there's not restrooms things like that but you know you're weighing it against like well there's 700 homeless people in flagstaff so you know do you really think we should be using two hundred thousand dollars towards toilets or do you think that should go towards um you know a shelter so it, it gets a little bit more complicated obviously but uh in in terms of weighing like priorities in, in the value of those priorities but yes uh very short story is i i did think that um the the city should should do things or raise money or do something to to kind of improve um what's already a great system yeah cool well, I want to tra transition again. I want to talk about your experience on the media side of the sport. And in particular, um, you came to my attention doing coverage of uh, the Hoka 100K world record attempt where I think Jim missed it by like 10 or 11 seconds. But I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on how our coverage of the sport is evolving. Can you talk a little bit about that? Certainly. The events Hoka put on, you know, they had one in 2000. 19 i believe it was 19 maybe it was 18 hmm. uh, i can't remember the original uh, project carbon x um and then project carbon x2 like you mentioned was just this past january uh that that is um just sort of like world class like that that was done as well as it could be done that, mm -hmm. that was done as, as well as a, a major road marathon yeah. um so the bar is set very high in, in those cases. Uh, now, that is very, very hard to replicate um, on a number of levels. So first of all, it's on the road, uh, those Project Carbon X races. And it's on a loop. And the whole thing is sort of designed to be covered yeah. as well as possible. So from that, again, did a very good job. Really hard to replicate. I, I've talked about this a little bit before, but the the, the main um, I think limiter in media access and and coverage of these events is the nature of the terrain over which these races are run. Hmm. Um, now take take Western States, which took a big step forward uh, in large part because yeah. of Hoka's involvement um, with the coverage uh, this year. You, it's really, really hard to capture live footage from a race when it's point to point over a hundred miles in some really remote terrain. You know, you're, you're just, it's going to be really hard to yeah. capture that. Um, I th again, I think it could be that this year was a step forward in terms of the coverage. Um, Dylan Bowman, Corinne Malcolm, yeah. uh, by all accounts, did a really great job um, talking about the event, uh, you know, in, in covering it. Um, throughout, um, and, and I think they'll continue to make step for, steps forward in, in the coming years as, um, you know, uh, service develop, you know, uh, improve, so, like Starlink now uh, is going to have, a, I think, a huge impact on um, oh, yeah. the, abil the ability to access the internet in the middle of nowhere, right? Um, suddenly, if you can do that, you can do a lot of, you can do a lot more things covering these events. 
so there have been some limitations and I think there always will be some limitations in terms of how well these events can be covered. Um, but on the upside, what you are seeing is more brands be involved, more, more money uh, being put forth because that, you know, that's, that's part of the equation in order to cover these races. Well, and you'll, the sport is growing and the sport will continue to grow so long as uh, you continue to have this type of coverage of events because it, it, it I mean, people want, like you said, like people are into it. Um, like we talked, talked about a little bit earlier, like people want, uh, this content. So what, what I would also add is what we don't need, um, or what I don't think adds value from the media side of things is doing things that have already been done, um, and doing things that aren't innovative, um, so, yeah, so uh, I would say, you know, Iron Far started covering events, I, I think like a decade ago. Like, I think Iron Far was doing like live yeah. coverage yeah. as long ago as 2011. And I still think their their coverage is relevant and that they do a really good job. Um, you know, they largely just tweet that uh, they're you're at various points. And, you know, I've, I've been, I've helped as recently as this summer at Hard Rock um, to, you know, hucked it up a mountain and had a sat phone and was calling in to like yeah. say where people were and what place they were. And that's a lot of fun. And I think that's, that's been, a, I mean, it's been the number one place to get race coverage, I would say in the sport up, up till now, I think. Um, so, so, you know, that's been great. Like you can, you can follow a race uh, through those tweets. But like going forward, I don't think like going to a race and tweeting is really like <laughs> what the sport needs to evolve. Like what the sport needs to evolve in terms of race coverage are things like what what Hoke is doing with these events, like having a broadcast, yeah. um, kind of taking it to, to the next level into the 21st century, so to speak, or using the most up-to-date technology. That's what's going to get more and more people, I think, interested. Um but but just kind of like doing the same thing that's been done in the past, I don't see that as a step forward, right? That, that that's kind of what I mean. And correct me if I'm wrong, but so you were sort of in like a motorcade in front of the runners at this hundred k event because you were close enough to them. Were you able to like get feedback from them and on like how they were doing mid race? Yeah, absolutely. And, th and this is why I say it's really tough to replicate. I think on the trails, um, you can, you can sort of do it, but in a more piecemeal fashion, cause you, mm. uh, but you can take a GoPro, right. Or, or a camera and, and run with some of the runners, um, along the way. And I think that's, that's really cool. It's really cool footage in terms yeah. of like, you know, people feel like they're there in the race yeah. and you can hear what's going on, et cetera, but that's exactly right. And, and I think that's part of what made that coverage so interesting. Um, and I, I mean, I could have been anyone, anyone could have been sitting where I was, uh, at least oh, anyone I totally who's like oh, I totally engaged agree. in the sport and would have been able to like provide really great commentary because yeah. you are just watching this thing unfold. You can, you can hear, yeah, you could hear the guys in the pack talking. You could hear what what they were talking about. You could just see, you, you could see different moves being made. I mean, it, it was fascinating to watch. And we're talking about running for six hours. Yeah. Um, which is crazy. Like I'd never tell you that's interesting, <laughs> like in theory, but like in in principle or in practice, it, it really it was it was fascinating. So yeah, I think that's really cool. And you, you only get a really small snapshot of that if you're. Posted up at, at outside an aid station or somewhere on course 
and right. you know you just see the runners going by and again i i think um, that's been valuable for the sport uh and that has been great but again i think going forward as the sport grows the media side needs to evolve as well yeah i i think you know and maybe there's going to be some sort of tech breakthrough with drones but having that like you said that like runner generated content in between aid stations where they can somehow comment on their status and we can watch them eating nutrition and working through lows and bonks and stuff like that like i i agree i think that'll be so and you can capture that on the road like you did but um you know in these remote locations it's tough it is yeah um Cool. Okay. So this, this next question is kind of weird, but, uh, I want to leverage your philosophy background here. And you wrote, you wrote, you wrote this article, maybe it was earlier this year or last year, but it was kind of connecting this myth of Sisyphus to ultra running. And I'm wondering for people that are not familiar with who Sisyphus is and what that myth is all about. Can you summarize the myth and talk about how it applies to our sport and some of the points you were making? Cause I thought you wrote, it was a great article. And for those that want to read it, I highly recommend it, but yeah, talk about yeah, that. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so I first read the myth of Sisyphus in an existentialism class uh, in, in undergrad. And it, it was written by Albert Camus, a French existentialist. Yeah. And it's, it's so brilliant. Uh, I've read it so many times since then. And it, it's, I, I applied it in this article to, to ultra running, but it, it is uh, applicable to... Um, anything you do in life and to life as, as a whole, uh, I think kind of um, applicable meaning um, you are Sisyphus uh, pretty much in everything that you do. And the myth roughly is um, Sisyphus was condemned by the gods um, to eternal damnation. And the gods thought uh, there could be nothing worse um, than, than being uh, reduced to um, uh, uh, I forget, I forget the exact word, useless toil, um, yeah. you know, having to forevermore, uh, for, for eternity, uh, have to, have to do, you know, hard labor without yeah. a purpose. Yeah. So, so what they concocted for Sisyphus was that he would have to roll this rock to the top of a mountain. Um, and it's once he got to the top, he would have to let the rock roll back down and he would walk back down, um, that's what he would do forever. Uh, and again, the idea was that, that there could be nothing worse than that. But it's, it's just beautiful um, the way that uh, the whole point then or the whole takeaway is the the task itself is not what's meaningful. Um, it is the way that you approach it and the things that you uh, conclude or take away from um, that task. And so, you know, I, I, I think there's a lot of good examples, but, um, you know, like folding laundry, I often look at, or just do it. The whole process of doing laundry is yeah. washing, the drying, the folding. I, I, it's, it's like rolling a rock up the hill to me. I, I just it, don't enjoy it. So, but the, but the point, if you're going to like, you know, look, take that myth of, of Sisyphus and sort of apply it is like, well, you've got, basically, you've got some options. You can um, do it begrudgingly uh, or angrily um, because you don't like doing laundry um, and you can be in a bad mood about it. Um, or you can do it and um, you can uh, have, a, have, have a good attitude. Um, you can spend time thinking about things 
um, maybe that you need to get done later that you know you can be productive or you can think about memories or you, you your mind has the ability to um, you have the ability to decide with your mind kind of what mood you're in or or what takeaways uh, you have from a particular task and it's very much in your control so in the case of ultra running I think uh, it, it's brilliant because um, <laughs> These really long races, uh, I think, feel a lot like eternal damnation sometimes. Like they're never going to end, and, it, and it's just very <laughs> painful. And but uh, I think the your ability to, in your mind, um, uh, to kind of deal with it and and not let it sort of consume you, this task, and, and kind of transcend it is kind of the point. And, and there's a line. Um, in, towards the end of, of the myth of Sisyphus, where he says, um, I forget the full thing, but but the, the, the very end is, I, as he's walking back down uh, the hill, Sisyphus, um, Camus writes, um, I imagine Sisyphus happy uh, that um, he found a way to, to uh, defy the gods and, uh, in fact, make this task uh, something almost enjoyable. So, yeah. That was I talked for a long time, but the, the, uh, I just love I love that uh, that piece. That was fun to write about. I have to do a, a hill repeat workout later today, and so <laughs> I'm going to be thinking to myself, you know, my perspective is more important than the task I'm performing. <laughs> that's exactly yep. Yeah, that's a very succinct way to put it. That's right. <laughs> okay, so I have I've I've been telling every guest that this next round needs a good title to it. So if you have any ideas by all means intervene, but are you ready for the lightning round of questions? Lightning round. Uh, I'll, I'll quickly jump in. A friend of mine, Matt Flaherty, who actually was just second at Leadville after a long hiatus from racing ultras. Um, so huge props to him. He briefly had a column at ultra running that is no longer in existence. So I yeah. think this is up for using, uh, but he, but he called it the quick and dirty uh, was the name of the column. And it, it was just like a quick Q and A, like short questions and answers um, that he did with with people. So quick and dirty. That's a possibility. You're the first person to offer a suggestion, so thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. Sure, sure. <laughs> All right. First question. This is a really weird one, but what's a question that you wish you were asked more often? Um, why are you a vegetarian? Why are That's you not something I get asked very Why much. are you a vegetarian? <laughs> Uh, well, it's Peter Singer. Um, it's the short answer. And by the way, who is, uh, P- who is Peter Singer for the audience if they don't know? Yeah, Peter Singer is a contemporary philosopher, uh, probably the most famous uh, living philosopher. And uh, he, he is an ethicist, um, and in particular, uh, applied ethics. And he uses um, a theory of ethics broadly known as consequentialism, to um, issues like um, eating meat, yeah. um, to issues like um, euthanasia, um, the death penalty, um, some pretty heavy, heavy hitting topics. But he, he approaches it very um, rigorously, uh, almost scientifically, yeah. uh, as, far, as far as you can in ethics. Um, and he, he is very good at um, uh, making persuasive arguments and getting you thinking uh, critically about, I think, some important issues. So, um, yeah, and animal rights is one of the things that he's very well known for. And in fact, uh, well, uh, 
he uh, he he apparently there was a time when he was at Princeton when they had a, a, a police officer or guard uh, outside of his door because he was receiving so many death threats because some of his uh, conclusions were were so uh, contentious or or um, disliked I guess. So, so what is it, what does he say about being a vegetarian? Yeah, he basically says uh, if you're just going to really condense down the the argument that. Um, gustatory pleasure um is not a sufficient reason to take a life unnecessarily um so in other words uh killing a living being whether it's a person or a pig or um a cow uh if your reason is um you like the taste of meat um gustatory pleasure yeah. uh the the value of that animal's life is more significant than um your taste buds and uh, enjoying um the taste of what you're eating uh and and he gets to this point uh, he has a number of arguments and they, and they are quite a bit more complicated but he gets to this point by basically um asking the question why do people eat meat yeah. um because it's not uh necessary in terms of existence um, you can you can not eat meat uh, and only eat plants and uh, be healthy. So it's not necessary. So given that it's not necessary, what are, what are the reasons in favor of eating it? And ultimately, he sort of whittles it down and says, well, really, at the end of the day, people are eating meat because they like the taste. Um, and if that's, you know, if that's why you're eating meat. Um, you may not even know why you're eating meat. It's just always been something you ate and were served. But if that's why you're eating meat, um, that's not a good reason. So, I I suffer. I tend to suffer from uh, recency bias. But that was a great answer to that that question. What is something that isn't big now, but you think it's going to be big in the future of our sport? It could be a form of nutrition, of training, a, a type of race, type of clothing. Like, what do you think? Well, maybe, yeah, maybe to come full circle or return to something we were talking about i think this um live race coverage well it's hard to say it's not big now but i think compared to what it will be it's not big now Mm. um yeah i think you'll really i i think we will really see uh big advancements and and see it more and more um at at a greater variety of races right now it's just kind of the big one yeah um as we go forward uh that would not surprise me at all um, but time will tell. We'll have to listen back to this in 10 years and see how wrong or right I was. <laughs> I think that'll age well. Um, so in addition to media coverage, what else, what's exciting you most about our sport right now? Ooh. Um, but yeah, another good question. There are a lot of things that I won't go into that infuriate me about the sport but uh, that's not what you asked um but things i'm excited about i i think i think the yeah i know this sounds kind of um almost like it's like a like i'm a sellout or something but uh i i it, it does get me excited to see brands getting so involved in the sport because i think it really is a, a crucial piece uh of the puzzle like without brand support and in, in the the as a result of their support, the the money that gets brought in and yeah. and and the events um, that get put on, et cetera, uh, that that just really leads to a lot of I think um, 
beneficial steps forward. So uh, yeah, I think that that gets me excited seeing seeing brand involvement. Okay, I can't let this one go. What's infuriating you right now about the sport? <laughs> oh, Finn, we don't have enough time. This would turn into a really long podcast. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Uh, you know, there's just a lot of people getting, uh, yeah, this is maybe a little bit more of an old school mentality, but just to very broadly summarize, you just have a lot of people like a, like a Leadville, um, you really just have a race organization that wants to make money. So they just want to let whoever in and a lot of those people on the start line shouldn't be, um, they're not prepared to run that race. Um, you're putting, they're putting themselves at risk. That's putting other people at risk. Um, it's, the barrier to entry is just so low, and, and the sport is so accessible now that um, you just get kind of a lot of riffraff, I guess. Yeah. Um, and even at the front of the race, you know, I mean, in Leadville, there were um, 20 guys, I think, that were roughly on the course record, roughly on course record split or within a few minutes through the yeah. first like 15, 20 miles. Well, no one was close to the course record. Yeah. And, and I don't know. I mean, I, I'm all for like racing hard and I, I'm, I'm certainly one to go to the front and push. Um, sure. It races where I feel like I can, but like, you know, that's, that's just kind of, you know, most of those people probably dropped out. Yeah. Um, they were up that far. It, it's just sort of, there's a lack of, um, I think it's, I think there's a lack of respect for the sport in the, the history of the sport and the people who quite frankly, were just way more badass than a lot of the people doing the, the running the sport now, even at a high level, like a Matt Carpenter, like that guy was just ruthless. Yeah. yeah. And you know, people go in there thinking like they can break that record or like to even be close to the course record split 15 miles in is uh, just, sort of obnoxious for, yep. for basically anyone. Um, I mean, I think Cody Reed, if he has a really good day, sure. uh, he could get close to that record. You know, sure. I think if Jim Walmsley's there, he should be under those course splits, um, course record splits. But yeah, it's just, uh, it, it just shows. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I think I said what I need to said, yeah. uh, need to say. But. Yeah. And, and just, just two quick comments on that. We, uh, we have Bob Crowley from ITRA coming on the podcast oh, yeah. soon. Sure, And he's on this mission with that organization to basically protect the values of the sport that, that made this great as brands like Lifetime Fitness and Spartan come into the sport. And yeah, I hadn't considered that, like the whole liability of like when Spartan comes into the sport, they bring like a million OCR racers into these events and yeah, they just don't respect the distances. They don't respect what's required to go a hundred miles, et cetera. So that's something I hadn't considered. That's a great, that's a great answer. Last question. What are you training for right now? Ooh, good question. Uh, well, I don't know because I don't know if I'm going to run the race that I'm considering running, which I'm not going to say, unfortunately, but it is a hundred mile race. I'll tell you yeah. that. Okay. And uh, if people know um, anything about my career, they can probably figure out which one it is. Um, but uh, I might run a hundred miler uh, this, this fall. So okay. I need, I need, uh, the next six weeks to, to go a particular way. So that's why I'm sort of hesitant to, uh, make the decision just yet. Well, if, uh, if people want to follow your journey, uh, where can they find you on social media and do you have any, uh, initiatives or projects that you want to plug? Uh, 
Uh, yeah, social media, <clears throat> um, you know, I'm on the usual uh, Twitter, Instagram. Um, my handle just just my name, Eric Sensman. Yeah. Uh, nothing in particular. I mean, you mentioned um, reading that piece uh, on, on the myth of Sisyphus. Uh, that came from my monthly column of stories um, on runninrabbit.com. So one of my, my apparel sponsor, Rabbit. Um, I do, yeah, this monthly column form. So uh, I, I definitely have fun with that. And um, it's cool that they started doing both um, writ, I, I write the article, but then I also record it with video. So there's also like a, um, you can watch it on YouTube yeah. or just like download it and listen to it. So I, I read um, the story. So they don't, you know, takes like 10 or 15 minutes to read through them. They're pretty short, but anyway, uh, those are fun. So, you know. Always check those out. Cool. Well, Eric, we we can't thank you enough for being on the podcast. I always appreciate your takes on the sport, and I look forward to uh, seeing more of them in the near future. And then also to see you at the start line of this mystery race, hundred <laughs> miles. That's pretty cool. Uh, yeah. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much, then. And yeah, the the sing- single track. I I think he nailed it on the, the podcast name. Um, I think that like it's a People will see that and think like single. Tra- I like single track, so I guess I'm gonna like this podcast. <laughs> There's a certain narrow-mindedness to it that comes with it, like stay yeah. on the single track. So yeah, yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyways, yeah. Thanks for having me. Hey, appreciate it. Talk to you soon. That's a wrap. What do you think? As usual, there were some threads that stuck with me. The first was, uh, you know, in talking about the birth of the Cowboys, it was interesting to learn from Eric that the organized team group concept was more a public perception than a reality. And that in reality, it was it's really just a group of close friends that want to leverage that community ethos to get the most out of themselves, um, you know, to push each other, to get better, to run fast, to perform well at races. And they certainly have done that. Um, but it does look like we need to do a deeper dive into what it takes to build a formal training group. You know, maybe we, we do need more resources in the sport from brands, especially before we can match what they're able to build and maintain on the road and track side of running. Because I think, I think one of the takeaways from Eric was, you know, the formation of the Cowboys was kind of serendipitous and it was really based on friendship and, you know, it's kind of a formula with a lot of intangibles. So We're going to put a pin in that and come back to that, I think, in a future episode. Maybe we'll have Eric on the pod again. Um, In the thread about surrounding yourself with better runners to get better, Eric had a quote, um, you do worse things to yourself in training than you ever do to yourself in a race. And that really clicked for me. I think the start line of most races probably pales in comparison to the pressure guys like Eric experience in these elite training environments, you know, you must get so much confidence. And it makes me wonder if the fear we experience on a start line is partly a realization uh, that we didn't push ourselves as much in training as we could have. Uh, Finally, I really like Eric's running philosophy. And I think that conversation connecting the dots between our sport and the myth of Sisyphus was really cool. Um, You know, the takeaways there, Uh, number one, how your perspective about a task is probably more important than the actual task you perform. And number two, how really doing anything with intentionality is what tends to bring happiness. 
without uh, getting too preachy, I, I would encourage you to meditate on that and to see how it could be applied to your running and maybe to your lifestyle in general. Um, so yeah. One last thing before I sign off, whether you are listening on a commute uh, while doing errands or on your run, thank you. Thank you. I am well aware that there are thousands of other podcasts out there and yet you choose to spend some of your attention on this one. And yeah, that is not lost on me. It means a lot. I am working hard behind the scenes to recruit guests, to edit shows, to improve the questions, the dialogue, to fix some of my verbal and conversational tics. It's so weird to listen to yourself uh, after the fact. Um, and I know I'm a broken record conveying how passionate I am, but it's the truth. And uh, if you like what's going on here, all I ask again is that you share it, that you rate it and review it in your favorite podcast player. It helps more people like you discover this, this uh, show. And at least in the short term, that's the goal uh, to increase the discoverability. So that's all I got. That's my only sales pitch. Um, cannot wait to share the next episode with you. And uh, yeah, shoot me a text, shoot me an email if you have any comments about this one. Until next time.